We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, in the not-so-distant past, kids played with toys we'd probably never give them today. Searing hot metal molds for melting noxious plastic goo. Giant darts that can come down with more than 20,000 pounds of force. A glass-blowing kit? This hour, we remember the treacherous toys and games of old and look at how our definition of dangerous has evolved over the years. And we want to hear from you. What's a dangerous toy you played with? Or perhaps a safe toy you played with dangerously? Tell us after this news. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The parents, or grandparents, of kids today played with toys so perilous they had to be banned. Lawn darts, chemistry sets with real uranium, metal ovens that could reach 600 degrees. These treacherous toys from a bygone era are on display at the Napa Valley Museum. And joining me now to talk about how toys and our understanding of danger have changed over the years. Museum Director Laura Rafferty is with us, Executive Director of Napa Valley Museum, Yonville, which of course features the exhibit I just mentioned, Dangerous Games, Treacherous Toys We Loved as Kids. Laura Rafferty, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Also with us is KQED reporter Chloe Veltman, who went to check out the exhibit recently. And Chloe Veltman, can you tell me what it was like when you were there? What were some of the things that you saw that really jumped out at you and made you say, I can't believe we let little kids play with that not that long ago. Yeah, Mina, um, it is an exhibition full of the most fantastical array of wonders I have seen um, in any museum exhibit in a long time. And, you know, it's hard to pick out, you know, one or two things from from all of this. But one of the thing, one of the areas of the exhibition that really stands out for me is this section devoted to space. Mm. And... um, there are these these things called the satellite jumping shoes, apparently popular during the space race in the 1950s and 60s. Um, really, the best way of describing them is they're sort of like trampolines you put on your feet. You you put your toes, you put you wear them, you wear them on your feet with your shoes on. You put your shoes into these red, bright red toe holders and then they have these massive heavy springs on the bottom and the idea was you were supposed to bounce around on those things and it was apparently uh, emulating the feeling of walking on the moon and I can only imagine that if I put a pair of those on I would instantly fall over. Oh my gosh yes well one of the ones that really uh, jumped out at me was the super elastic plastic bubble. I managed to check out the exhibit quickly yesterday. And uh, it, it was basically like this tube um, that it's like toothpaste. It comes out as this kind of goo that, that kids could blow 
with a straw and it created this this plastic orb but that it was one of those things that was so irritating to the throat that uh it could cause all kinds of problems <laughs> if inhaled and uh laura rafferty it's reminding me also of one of the other exhibits that you that you really uh showcased prominently in your exhibit, which is the one I think that was described creepy crawlers. Can you talk a little bit about that one? Because I understand that that one also had some noxious fumes associated with it as well. It, it did. And the, I, I should mention that the um, super elastic bubble plastic also got you high, which is one of the reasons why they took it off the market. <laughs> ah. um, not, um, but no, the uh, creepy crawlers were, um, uh, the, had a, a line of toys, but one of them was called a thing maker. And that was the most um, famous. And essentially it was a, an oven that would get, um, you would put a, take a metal mold that had a metal handle and you would fill it with toxic goo, which is called plastigoop. And then you would put this thing into the creepy crawler's oven where it would reach um, 350 degrees Fahrenheit. And then you were supposed to, and you, you would make a form like a spider or a worm or a bug or something. And then you'd put it into a little plastic thing to cool of water uh, in cool uh, in water to cool. But nobody ever did that. They would just go ahead and start prying that thing out of the hot oven. And then you would grab the mold and you would chase your siblings through the house. And once the uh, spider was done, you would basically either shove it up your nose or shove it up your sister's nose or hide it in somebody's hair. And it was uh, fun for the whole family. It sounds like you're speaking of it from personal experience with all the detail that you're giving there, Laura. Oh, yeah. My cousin David was a, a diabolical Dave, as he's known, was was very well known for this kind of thing. Um, you would find and, and it also you could make rings, you know, with spiders on them and stuff. It was actually kind of fun. They made a they made edible versions of them later on um, with a gobbledygook, they called it. Um, but those were also had to be taken off the market. So unfortunately, the creepy crawlers um, were it, like many of the toys in the in our um, exhibit or did cause people some singes, some burns, um, some pain, but they're remembered with great fondness by everybody who was a victim of them. Uh, yeah, there were some that even practically impaled people. We invited our listeners to share what dangerous toys they played with as kids. And Ben writes on Instagram, jarts, lawn darts uh, were mm -hmm. my jam when I was little until I saw the boy visiting his grandma next door catch one in his ear. Never knew oh. what happened to him, but it's burned in my memory. I wasn't the only one who threw it by the way. Talk about lawn darts. I mean, these were these massive metal missiles like things. Yes. With, like, plastic they, things. they landed, they were, exactly. And they, they, they um, landed with 23,000 pounds of force. Um, they Incredible. were basically a metal missile with a heavy shaft. I have these aerodynamic plastic fins. You were supposed to throw them underhand, but no one did. And in, interestingly, in 1970, the federal government decided to ban what we call lung darts and lawn darts. So they, they took aim at um, cigarettes and, and lawn darts at the same time. And um, they, with regard to, well, both really, they said these are not for use for children. So they didn't, they didn't ban them outright. They just said that this was not a children's game, but they were still you know, available everywhere. Um, they're illegal to sell to this day, but they, I didn't have any trouble getting them for the exhibit, to be honest. So 
We're remembering dangerous toys of old with Laura Rafferty, executive director of the Napa Valley Museum, and Chloe Veltman, a reporter for KQED News. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation with the toys or games that you played with as a child that, looking back, you realize may not have been so safe. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. You can email us, forum at kqed.org. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at KQED Forum. Carla writes on Instagram, every toy I had was potentially lethal. Stilts, pogo sticks, lawn darts, some kind of horribly smelly toxic plastic goo that you baked into weird bug shapes, metal skates, toboggans, handmade go-karts of death, cap guns, and those big bouncy balls with a handle that you grabbed on and then jumped all over the place with. And it was very easy to fall back and crack your head open. <laughs> One of the toys that you highlight uh, in your piece for, for KQED, Chloe Veltman, is clackers. Can mm -hmm. you describe clackers? Oh, yeah. Clackers. Well, they look innocuous enough. They're these little balls. I think they're made of a, a hard acrylic plastic. I suppose that's where the problem begins. And they're on the end on, of these strings. And the, 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 the concept is very simple. You basically move them around. You use your wrist uh, to, to move them and they can do all kinds of tricks. And they make a very pleasing sound, actually. I include some of that in my forthcoming radio piece that's coming up. Um, they sound lovely and you can do all... They're just very... I, I sort of think of them in the same way as... Like a fidget spinner, in a way, is popular today, kind of, or was popular a few years ago. This very just sort of satisfying thing to do with your hands. Um, and they're pleasing to the ear. But the problem is that uh, these things could basically shatter into a thousand jagged shards. And they caused so many accidents. They were completely banned. Um, and uh, in fact, I mean, they became the the uh, source of a, a very famous 1976 Saturday Night Live skit that, that some of our audience may remember, the Bag of Glass skit. Right. And uh, I remember uh, reading in the exhibit, Laura Rafferty, that the clacker was originally pitched as a toy to help kids develop hand-eye coordination. But what could happen is that flying shards could get in the eyes. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And they or they could the balls could come loose from the string and then they became basically missiles. <laughs> so um, <laughs> those were nuts. But, you know, I mean, all of the there, there are many toys in the exhibit. We talk about ones that have both physical danger and then other kinds of danger um, to, to morals and uh, your your immortal soul and other things. But um, but the overarching point of it is that I think people are so nostalgic for a time when they just didn't need to be afraid of everything. You know, they just didn't they they didn't think about it. I mean, one of the, the things that's remarkable to me is how um, well, there have been a couple, but, but one is how many people did tell me that their parents set them off in the morning and said, leave the house, come back alive for dinner. That was it. And um, if they didn't break their glasses or lose their retainer, the, you know, bonus points for that. But um, they were completely unsupervised and um, they and there was no fear of of inter interacting with toys like this, um, giving them a chemistry set with, you know, toxic chemicals that you'd be afraid to give an adult um, or an atomic energy kit. Um, those kinds of things, just people just didn't need to be as afraid. And in a time today when we all are, you know, much more nervous, um, mm. it's, it was a nice nostalgia for that, for that blissfully ignorant time. So you're hearing a lot of people, um, attach or connect to that when they are visiting the exhibit. Chloe, you also explored this relationship with 
nostalgia and thinking about and enjoying these toys, even if they did hurt you. Mm -hmm. Uh, What did you uncover by exploring that in your piece? Well, I mean, you know, nostalgia is something that runs deep, I think, with every generation thinking about toys. And I I did spend some time chatting with... um, somebody who studied nostalgia quite a bit, uh, a writer called Grafton Tanner, who recently came out with a book called The Politics of Nostalgia. And, you know, this idea that um, the things that people are nostalgic for today, you know, fast forward 20 years, it'll be a different set of things, you know. And and we, we just generally become very, very attached to the things from our youth and we're very, very impressionable. Um, so, you know, but I think the other the other aspect of it is that there's a sort of a funny thing that happens with the memory around nostalgia. And um, Grafton Tanner was saying that, um, you know, we tend to think of of the past, um, of a certain period, as as being safer uh, than the present. It's a sort of a cosy retreat. But, you know, the interesting thing about this exhibition is it kind of turns that idea on its head. It's like people are remembering that post-war period uh, as, as dangerous and feeling really getting the warm and fuzzies about it. And, and that's really interesting. I think. Yes. And, uh, you know, you earlier you had referenced um, the Saturday Night Live skit that had um, been inspired by Clackers. And we're about to go into a break, but I understand we have some tape of that skit right now. So let me play a little bit of that as we remember Dangerous Toys with you, our listeners. We'll have more after the break. Stay with us. Mr. Mingway, this is simply a bag of jagged, dangerous glass bits. Yeah, right. It's, uh, you know, it's it's a glass. It's a broken glass, you know. I mean, uh, you know, it sells very well, as a matter of fact, you know. It's it's, it's just broken glass, you know. (laughs) I I don't understand. I mean, children could seriously cut themselves on any one of these pieces. Yeah, well, look, you know, a kid, the average kid, he picks up, you know, broken glass anywhere. The beach, the street, garbage cans, parking lots, all over the place, any big city. We're just packaging what the kids want, you know. know? I mean, it's a creative toy. I mean, you know, you, you hold this up, you see... Colors, you know, you see all the colors are rainbows, you know. I mean, it teaches them about light refraction, you know, prisms and that stuff, you know. You know oh. Prisms, you know, you know what I mean? I see. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Oh, so you don't feel that this product is dangerous? No, come on, look. We put a label on every bag. It says, kid, be careful, broken glass. <laughs> Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You can make in an easy bake, an easy bake mini wave oven. Chocolate and a yellow cake in an easy bake mini wave oven. Pour in the mix, it's lots of fun. Bake ten minutes till it's nice and done. You can ice the cake that you bake in an easy bake mini wave oven. Delicious. Welcome back to Forum. We're talking about 
Doys of old, some that were quite dangerous and why we love them anyway. Chloe Veltman, a reporter for KQED News, recently covered an exhibit at the Napa Valley Museum, Yonville, called Dangerous Games, Treacherous Toys We Loved as Kids. And Laura Rafferty is with us, Executive Director of Napa Valley Museum as well. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation, sharing your memories of games or toys that you played with as a child that, looking back, maybe not so safe. And you can always share them by emailing us, forum at kqed.org getting in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, and uh, the number to call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And let me go to caller Babette in San Francisco. Hi, Babette. Hi. Um, happy holidays to everybody. I just wanted to share uh, one of my favorite memories from Christmas morning, running to our stockings and finding a whole carton of chocolate or candied cigarettes with little <laughs> torches on the end. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yes. Those probably would not be in a lot of stockings today, Laura Rafferty. <laughs> That's right. We, we actually have uh, a display of candy cigarettes in the, uh, in the exhibit, and we were shocked to learn that um, the cigarette companies purportedly sent um, their brand packaging to the candy companies so that they could um, copy them almost exactly. And the Surgeon General uh, decided that there was too much of a risk of kids would be lured into a lifetime of smoking. So they were no longer, the same year they banned lawn darts and uh, put warning labels on cigarettes, they said you could no longer call them cigarettes. So you called them candy sticks or something else like that. These were also very popular, I might add, in uh, Europe. <laughs> Yes. Uh, yeah, they were they were everywhere. I mean, I will admit, too, that I remember wanting that as a child and having so much fun blowing the sugar out of the end. But uh, Rick writes, when I was small, our pharmacist gave me a capsule containing mercury. It was about one to two cubic centimeters in volume. It was really fun to play with, especially since I was interested in science. It eventually all ended up spread out on the floor of my dark room. I wonder what, if any, ailments I have are due to the mercury. <laughs> Charlie writes, my parenting style is to embrace as much danger as we can. Sticks jumping off of high things. My kids were using those chopper knives around two years old. I'm more concerned that if I forbid something that makes it the only thing in the whole world they want. Mm. Huh, interesting. What Charlie is bringing up, I think, is something that... Uh, You've touched on in your exhibit when you described your toys as like tantalizingly treacherous or gleefully lethal, Laura Rafferty. And this is this relationship between toys and danger um, that, that people find them appealing because they are dangerous in some ways. Absolutely. I mean, you... Um you have to remember that so many of these toys were really marketed heavily to children during the daytime television. You know, we'd be there on the weekend watching our cartoons or in the mornings, and we would just be inundated with these um, ads for these toys that all made it look like adventure. A lot of this stuff was in the sort of Cold War era, so there was a lot of spy versus spy, you know, man from uncle, um, spycraft, kind of James Bond kind of stuff. And, and or you'd see the Wild West um, uh, you'd be watching your favorite television show and then you'd buy a themed toy that would go so that you could pretend that you were a gunslinger. Um, I think a, a lot of it just really, um, you were inundated in a sensory um, perspective of um, wanting to experience the danger yourself that you were seeing on television. 
Well, the thrill of danger definitely still exists, and it's in kids today. Uh, we had some of our colleagues talk with their kids about the toys that they love. And this is Simon, who is 10 years old in Oakland, explaining how teeter-totters have just gotten, like, too safe. Or seesaws, if you don't know what a teeter-totter is. Teeter-totters are really fun. But unfortunately, like, they, like, no one makes them anymore. They only have those little baby deer tots where it springs, not an axle. And I really like going all out on those. They're fun. They're dangerous. That's basically the same thing. Fun and dangerous, basically the same thing. And Rich writes, <laughs> bicycles, scooters, roller skates, child-sized bows and arrows, they were dangerous, and they still are. Uh, we actually had Orion, an eight-year-old uh, from Oakland, telling us why uh, Orion loves rollerblading. Let's hear that. It's fun because you can, like, turn and jump and do cool stunts and glide around and go super fast. But if you go too fast and you can't stop yourself, you can crash and fall. Or just too fast, you'll just, like, fly away and crash. I love the feeling of when... I'm going fast, and it feels like I'm really brave because I'm, like it's like dangerous. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. Thank you, Simon. Um, Chloe, you also sort of explored this tension between fun and danger. Talk to us a little bit about how toy makers are trying to hit the sweet spot on that. Yeah, so Whammo, which is a California-based company, in fact was uh, up here in the Bay Area for a period of time, uh, but now it's down south, is one of the main uh, companies since the 1940s that's been behind making a lot of the, of the, of the toys that we know and love from, from old, and some of them are still around in one form or another, like the slip and slide, for example. Um, and they, obviously, as the years have gone on, uh, have had to deal with increasing amounts of litigation and 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 ever tightening or a, a growing list of safety standards they have to adhere to for, for toys um but i spent some time with andy fuso who used to work with the company when it was here in san francisco i think he said he was there in the late nine eight late 80s early 90s and and he was talking about the Frisbee in particular. And I thought that was a very good way of describing this tension that we're talking about here. Because he says at one point, the company was trying to develop um, a sort of a, a, a safer, less less hit you hard in the head with a flying plastic disc ouch version of the toy. It was sort of rubbery and soft. And he said that the trouble with something like that is on the one hand, it does... Um, cause less accidents but on the other hand it doesn't really fly so he says that they're always trying to this company's always trying to kind of look for that sweet spot in the middle between having enough of a a sense of discovery in children so a little bit edgy while at the same time you know not causing uh, hospitalizations Right. Well, Raquel's tweets, I spent many delightful summer afternoons scraping my hide on the grass at the end of a slip and slide. Seems our parents only cared if we wore a hole in the sod. <laughs> Part of the fun was rallying the neighborhood kids to clear the rocks and engineer a puddle at the end. Interestingly about Frisbee and slip and slide, those are toys that have endured um, even if they were deemed fairly dangerous or, or caused in some cases some pretty serious injuries. I think at one point a slip and slide, what did it do to a child, Laura Rafferty, that really put it in the hot seat for a while? 
Well, the, the slip and slide was pretty safe for young kids. It was older kids or larger kids that could get into trouble because you would um, slide on it. And then if you were too big, you would stick all of a sudden. You, would, you wouldn't slide. And then there could be serious neck injuries and, the, and in some cases paralysis. But most of the injuries That's that right. I heard of fondly described by, um, was people who remembered, oh, it kept coming up, the, slide, the slippery slide kept coming up on my, um, in the backyard. So my dad put um, bricks on all four corners and then we we collided yes exactly so i think there was a lot of you know retooling that just didn't that went awry but oh. you know, but and by the way i i do want to compliment simon on his insightful comment because one of the things that we have a photo of a backyard he was talking about the teeter-totter yeah and um people remember childhood um you know the gyms and and in the um and schoolyards um so fondly the jungle gyms the um the searing hot metal slides that you would go down and stick you know if, it, if you're in california it was very very hot and you would sort of stick with your legs and then you would land on asphalt or um gravel and now they're all rubber and plastic. And I've heard so many complaints about that from people. They really miss the, the, the great uh, outdoor metal sculptures of old. <laughs> oh, well, let me uh, get some more listeners and callers into the conversation. Davis in Menlo Park, join us. Hi, Davis. Hey, happy holidays. Happy holidays. What do you want to um, share? So when I was, <laughs> thank you, Abby. I, I had a model steam engine when I was growing up, and the idea is, part science project and you put this liquid sterum in the bottom that was highly flammable and heat the water which would then make the wheel go round and it was um, just a walking disaster and a plaintiff <laughs> lawyer's dream and I would play with it in the attic where there's no ventilation and all wood and <laughs> oh. it's just a miracle I didn't burn the house down. Uh, totally Davis well thanks for sharing that. Um, let me go to Christine in Menlo Park next. Hi Christine. What Hello? did you play with? An electric stove, a child-sized electric stove that uh, the burners would uh, heat up to red, and we used to fry bread uh, in butter on top of the stove. It was down the basement, no supervision. Oh, my goodness. It was goodness. a lot of fun. Oh, well, Christine, thanks for sharing that. Certainly, Laura Rafferty, so many objects that could cause physical harm in the exhibit. But as you alluded to earlier, you also had a section where you were talking about other kinds of harms, whether moral harms or even harms about people um, awakening other dimensions. Uh, can you talk a little bit about well, first, talk about the Ouija board and what the concerns were around the Ouija board. Oh, well, you know, the Ouija board was actually considered a very safe uh, thing for many, you know, for many, many years um, from when it was first developed. Um, it was a way to reach your dearly departed. It was, you know, a, a, although the Catholic Church wasn't all that fond of it, um, it was, it was, spiritualism <laughs> was a, a real thing um, and, and a positive in the world. And then, um, interestingly, in the 60s, when Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist and Carrie came out, um, there became a huge amount of fear about unlocking a door to the um, evil beyond. And so people started to get very nervous about Ouija boards. But you know, back in my day, it was certainly um, a mainstay of junior high slumber parties. And um, it was, uh, and so people are, you can, you can actually play with a Ouija board in the, 
in the exhibit, and we talk a little bit about the uh, the history of it. Um, but it, you know, this the tarot cards, um, Kreskin's ESP, you know, Yuri Geller out there bending spoons. There was just a lot of that uh, kind of stuff at the time, um, and and of course the magic eight ball is in there um, in that section too. So it wasn't that they were dangerous to your body, but that you know perhaps you could be lulled into a into a psychotic trance. <laughs> and what toys were part of your quote unquote moral dangers exhibit? Uh, well, that's the, a couple there. There's the, the, the hula hoop, um, which um, some countries banned. They felt that that sort of hula motion could um, awaken sexual desires. Um, and uh, oh we can't have that. <laughs> um, and, then, um, and then Twister, the game Twister, which a lot of people remember um, as a board game where you put right hand red, left hand yellow, you spin a big dial and you've, put you knew you played in your stocking feet and you would um but when it was first developed in the in 1966 um it was considered so racy that they actually put a, a picture on the cover of the box where everybody's dressed in super conservative attire like business suits and none of their bodies are touching and so when they released this thing nobody bought it most of the retailers didn't want to carry it and then johnny carson and ava gabor played the game on the tonight show and it just went on to sell tens of millions of copies almost immediately so wow we're remembering so-called dangerous toys of old with Laura Rafferty, executive director of the Napa Valley Museum in Yountville. Chloe Veltman is with us, a reporter for KQED News. You, our listeners, are also sharing your reflections. And I want to bring Julia Chen into the conversation. Julia Chen is owner of the Play Store, which is a Berkeley-based online retailer of wooden toys and a board member of Fair Play, a nonprofit organization committed to helping children thrive and ending marketing to children. Julia Chen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I understand you've been talking to parents since the 90s and have a really good sense of how um, their sense of what constitutes a dangerous toy has changed and evolved over the years. Can you talk about some of the things that you remember parents being particularly concerned about, say, in the mid-90s, and, and what they seem to be more concerned about today? Well, I think the evolution has really just been, um, it's that push and pull of, uh, as um, this exhibit highlights, is that um, fun does maybe equal danger a little bit. Um, and then there was that sort of our cultural development of sort of having this perfect childhood or having everything be safe. And um, so what happened was uh, parents um, started to get really worried about whether or not you could play with this set and another set from another manufacturer or, you know, a set of blocks from one that's from one brand and a, and a set of blocks from another. I mean, it became so, um, people were fearful. That definitely increased over um, the last couple of decades. Oh, do you mean like the integrity of brands that they weren't familiar with? You get a lot of questions about that? No, it was basically sort of like one set of blocks um, from one toy maker and another set of blocks from another toy maker and asking if it was okay to mix the two sets together. Oh, you mean it was just as simple as whether they were safe to play with combined? <laughs> yes. I mean, it became, it swung. There were, there was definitely societal pressure, um, especially here in the Bay Area, I think, um, to that where everything had to be just right. 
and that there was an idea of perfection and a hundred percent safety. Maybe I, I think about oh, um, what um, some of the people who've attended, who've gone to the exhibit have said, you know, that they appreciate is that, you know, there was a time when maybe we weren't so fearful. Well, Morgan writes, interesting, parents today may not let kids play with toys like the ones mentioned, but they will allow them to sit inside playing video games mm -hmm. that are so realistic that the military uses <laughs> them to train soldiers. I wonder what is more dangerous? Husband and I played with almost all the toys mentioned, but our biggest toys were trees and the wild outdoors. We are alive in one piece, a couple head scars, <laughs> in parentheses. But what do you think about that, Julia? And and do you hear parents becoming concerned about the dangers of video games and screens now? Or do you think that they're pretty cavalier about them in your experience? Oh, no, I think especially during the pandemic, I think that um, danger um, in, in terms of causing children developmental harm has really hit home. Um, I'm a board member of Fair Play, and it's an organization that uh, very much is working on that and um, in changing policy and uh, ringing the alarm bells. And finally, at this point, there are so many families that have been so impacted by children being on screens all the time that uh, it's really coming to light and in terms of big tech based on where we are and how much um, they have manipulated um, children and keeping them on screens and that old adage that if the product is free, then you're the product um, is certainly true. And so um, the developmental harm that comes from keeping children online on screen um, is very real. And a lot of these things are marketed as toys or, you know, you say you're playing on the computer um, or that you're, and then especially with educational technology where children are learning math concepts, for example, through play. And yet some of these companies while they provide the software for free to schools, um, and a child can log in and learn these math concepts, but there are many opportunities to pay for a membership. And so it the characters on the screen encourage the children to ask to, to their parents to pay for a membership. And, um, and if sometimes if you just really can't, but what happens is it makes the child feel bad because these characters will actually get upset that um, hmm. and kind of throw a little temper tantrum and start crying if they're not able to do that. Fascinating. What you're getting at is a very different definition of dangerous. And let's explore more of that after the break. Stay with us as we talk dangerous toys then and now. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Okay, everybody, come outside. Everybody ready for a wild, wet ride? Step, step and slide. You can put it on your lawn. Turn the water on, then you run, run, run. And you're sliding on your top. Step, step and slide. Step, step and slide. It's a lot of fun to play when the spray goes all the way. Step, step and slide. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about dangerous toys with Chloe Veltman, a reporter for KQED News, Laura Rafferty, executive director of Napa Valley Museum Yachtville, Julia Chen, owner of the Play Store, a Berkeley-based online retailer. And you, our listeners, are with us sharing your memories and reflections of toys. 866-733-6786, the number to join the conversation. 866-733-6786. You can also email us, forum at kqed.org, or post your thoughts on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. A couple from our audience, Jennifer writes, the fun fountain, a clown-shaped head hooked up to a hose that shot a hard plastic conical hat straight up with a thick stream of water. You jump through the stream, hoping not to lose an eye while trying to dodge the heavy hat as it fell from the sky good times that's a perfect sort of follow on the the slip and slide both backyard hose related games and also um games that really talk about physical danger but just before the break uh chloe bellman we were talking about the changing definition of what constitutes dangerous toys and i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about well first what you heard when you asked people if they really felt that toys were, quote unquote, safer today? Yeah, I mean, I mean, despite evidence from, you know, that, that suggests that, that there are lots fewer, there are far fewer toy related injuries um, in, in reports I've read. They've dropped quite a bit over the last decade. Um, and we do have this incredibly vigilant culture of parenting today you still have these dangers persisting. We've talked a little bit about them. And and the parents I spoke with um, really think that it's not that dangers have actually gone away. It's just that they've gone elsewhere, like, for example, onto the the video games or just being on social media, for example. And, um, you know, it depends really what different parents think about parenting. but, But a lot of them said to me, well, you know, there's really only so much you can control. Right. There is only so much you can control because there's also what Julia Chen, you were getting at, the influence element of toys as well. And when we think about some of the toys of old, like um, I think there was one called like Susie Homemaker that was featured in the Napa Valley exhibit, really reinforcing certain gender norms that, that people might consider dangerous today or there were so many guns on display as well. And a lot of that was, a sport, of course, marketed to, to young boys. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about whether or not you feel like we've made a lot of progress on that. Because while I do feel like I see more toys that are trying to offer more diversity, maybe dolls, for example, with different skin tones, I do feel like um, the gendered nature of toys ha- has 
is still really intense. Like it's at a level where you often see different aisles that are specific or designed to cater to people who identify as girls or as boys. Yes, it does still happen. I mean, I think if you go down to Target, um, the aisle is still definitely very much boy toys for boys and toys for girls. Um, and even the STEM kits um, that are um, meant for um, girls, they're very pink um, and purple. So it's still very much um, a binary and um, people aren't really considering that um, a STEM toy can really just be a simple set of blocks, for example. And um, that's how children learn and, and to trust them to be able to discover just like one of the um, callers or emailers who said that um, they were able to explore and yes, they have a few scars, <laughs> um, but they were able to figure things out and early childhood development um, folks definitely talk about children needing to discover that the number five, for example, that five feathers equals is the same as five rocks. And that's how they actually internally understand five. Mm -hmm. And they need to be able to touch and hold that in order to, for, to really make sense. Well, let me get some more callers into the conversation. Henry in Santa Rosa, thanks for waiting. Hi, Henry. Well, hi there. Um, yeah, you know, I had a flexi flyer in the 60s until they were removed from the market because they were so dangerous, the little wheeled sled. Um, but I wanted to talk about a rope swing that we had in the woods. I think some teenagers stole the rope from the high school gymnasium, but we built a ladder so you could climb up high, and then the thing swung out over a ravine about 20, 25 feet deep. And as every time we came back uh, on the swing, another kid would jump on. And so then there'd be two kids and then they'd come back and there'd be three kids. And pretty soon there'd be kids hanging all over the rope swing until the momentum stopped. And that was, uh, I, I don't know how many broken arms we had. Oh my God. <laughs> well, <laughs> that was a toy that was uh, kind of risky. Yeah. Well, Henry, sounds like you have a lot of fond memories of it. Thanks for sharing. Let me go to Amanda and Sebastopol. Hi, Amanda. Hi, good morning. Thanks for doing this show. It brings back so many great memories, which is <laughs> that sometimes danger wakes us up in a way that's really important that I think it's missing for today's youth. And I wanted to share a story. I grew up in lower New York in British Village. There was a playground on Bleecker Street that had a sandbox with a concrete boat, and then it had a lookout or a watchtower or a lighthouse that was probably 15 feet tall. I don't know, I was little. Maybe it was only 10 feet tall. But it had a ladder, and you could climb up. And, of course, we climbed up, and we jumped into the sandbox near the boat. And then something must have happened because the ladder disappeared. So what did we do? We turned over a metal New York City garbage can. And we would climb up on the garbage can and then pull ourselves up to this lighthouse. And of course, it was so much fun. And so I was born in, in the 60s and experienced that disappearing. The lighthouse was taken down. The whole park was redone without that. And now I have a 20-year-old who, when he was little, people weren't letting their kids climb trees because they were afraid they'd get hurt. And I just see the tragedy in that, that not to let kids learn 
if I go up too high, I have to be careful. I need, you know, I need to learn these skills to be able to navigate the world. So I think it's really important that kids are allowed, especially in nature, to explore and push those boundaries. I think learning risk and learning danger is part of growing up. Somebody was talking about flexi wagons, flexi flyer, or red, red flyer wagons. Yep. I used to ride those down a ramp. I've got scars on my knees. But they're such good memories. So I think there's a healthy balance. That Amanda, maybe we've, the thanks. The pendulum has swung. Playgrounds are too safe and rubberized, and kids don't get to have enough fun and memories in them. Amanda, thanks. I appreciate you sharing your reflection. And Laura Rafferty, I, I definitely sensed that feeling um, in your exhibit as well, just in terms of, um, just in terms of some of the, the ways that we look back at certain injuries as growing up, <laughs> part of growing up, we, we have fond memories of, of times like that. And if there is a way for us to sort of strike the balance that Amanda is talking about, that you see that as beneficial. Do you think that um, the pandemic helped us get out of our homes? I know Julie was mentioning that they put a lot of kids on screens, but I think you've mentioned that you also feel like they helped kids rediscover their backyards. They did. We, we talked about, there was a wonderful Sports Illustrated article uh, written by Steve Russian that we um, adapted a bit of into our uh, exhibit because it, the idea was really that if this was a lost summer and that we could all sort of were forced to reconnect with what it was like when the backyard was a land of adventure, when we could, um, and, and not just the backyard, but the neighbor, the whole neighborhood where we could explore, that it was a real land of adventure. And it was really children using their imaginations um, to uh, create new worlds for themselves, which is a little bit harder when you're now doing it with a screen where they're sort of inundating you with all of these, you know, this incoming information. Um, we, one of the things that I've noticed is like, what a rite of passage all of these injuries seem to be. And like, it's, it, it's almost like uh, we have, we're on the grounds of the veterans home and they'll, the veterans will sometimes tell me these stories and they seem so proud of all of the, you know, the injuries that they had. And to some degree, these kids are, these grown up kids are telling me the same thing. And a number of people have told me that they served as the basis for the ramp that their um, brothers and all his, their brother's friends did wheelies over. So basically they were trying to, their brother would be emulating Evil Knievel and they would ask their younger sibling to lie down and they would put some piece of cardboard or something over him and then they would all ride their bikes over him. And this was sort of how they got to be part of the of the gang was to sort of make their bones by um, by being part of this kind of, you know, activity. And it's sort of, sort of horrifying to parents, I would imagine. But, um, and, and luckily I didn't hear a lot of ramp injuries. I heard mostly injuries from the, the kids who were on the bikes, but um, it's, I, I do think people are really proud of just that time that they were able to learn how to, to climb a tree and yeah, they fell out of a tree and hopefully they didn't break their neck. And um, you know, you can, you can be out there in the world and gain physical confidence in yourself and survive. Well, one of the things I'm struck by, Julia Chen, is for all the toys that were banned, there are a lot of toys these days that I'm seeing that are sort of like retro, that are coming back, that people are enjoying seeing toys of old being offered today in stores. What is that about? I think that is that nostalgia piece, you know, to have the old Jack in the Box or um, 
don't know, Mr. Potato Head kind of thing that, um, or even now, of course, all the Star Wars toys and whatnot um, of adults who are, remember them fondly from childhood. Um, and luckily, most of those are relatively benign. So, <laughs> but Laura Rafferty, I understand clackers have staged a comeback. Uh, Slackers have changed a stage to come back. There are lots that they're supposed to be shatterproof plastic. I would say that Mr. Potato Head has had a bit of a of a canceling moment. Um, there's some gender issues around Mr. Potato Head um, that are troubling to some. And um, but a lot of these toys, when they were reissued, to be honest, um, somebody reviewed uh, the the new Creepy Crawlers as a, a toy designed by lawyers. It just doesn't have the same. <laughs> Um, toxic, you know, magic that they, they used to, the sort of um, dangerousness is gone. And that that seems to have wiped out a lot of the fun, unfortunately. Can I well, just yeah. jump but in here quickly? Chloe, you've got five seconds, go right yeah, ahead. Sort of, there is this thing called the kid alt trend. It's real. And the Toy Association tells me there's a brand new awards category this year that's launching for toys specifically marketed at adults that are partly in response to nostalgia for the past. So there you go. I uh, just need to do a quick cutaway. Um, we're talking with Chloe Veltman, a reporter for KQED News, Laura Rafferty, executive director of the Napa Valley Museum of Yontville, Julia Chen, owner of the Play Store, Berkeley-based online retailer of wooden toys and a board member of Fair Play. And you're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Go ahead, Chloe. This category that you're saying, basically people who want to relive that nostalgia have lots of opportunities now. Yeah, that's exactly right. Toy Association uh, says that uh, it, it is, in fact, an emerging trend. It's It, it wasn't uh, formed during the pandemic. It had been around for a little while before, but definitely the pandemic helped to shape it because you have suddenly a lot of adults with their families at home and trying to figure out what to do with themselves. And a lot of these older toys, as in their reissued versions, which are you know, somewhat safer uh, for some of them, um, have sort of come back. And that and that's part of this thing called the kid alt trend. There's a brand new awards category for it starting this year. And I might add that it's not just, though, about uh, nostalgia for these uh, toys of the past they might have played with when they were growing up themselves. There's, it, there's also uh, part of it is, for example, building on brands that were popular during these adults' childhoods, for example, toys uh, or, or other kinds of things around, say, the TV series Friends, for example. Well, this listener writes, when I think of a dangerous toy or game, I think of pinatas. I finally recall the time my sister ran my brother in the side with the stick. She was blindfolded after all. Now I'm the mom who's always yelling at kids to stay back. I can't imagine kids' parties without them. The sheer joy of hitting the pinata and picking up candy is priceless. Let me see if I can squeeze Mariah uh in Nevada in here hi mariah thanks for joining us hi thanks i really appreciate this show it really has me thinking about nostalgia in ways that i or in depth in ways that i really hadn't before and i'm i you know it brought up for me there were two parks that i used to go to as a kid one was holly park and the other was there was a swimming pool on 19th avenue and um both had like these really toxic um one had a, an old fire truck and the other had an old airplane and it had you know lead paint i remember picking it off oh. getting it in our hair big pieces of metal coming off my leg i have this humongous scar because i sliced it open and i'm not the only one and i look at that scar with such fond memories and i'm like and i take my kids you know to holly park now and it's so boring and i think you know uh, I just I feel like it gave me a sense of like being able to take some risks because my son, you know, I, I try to do things a little different with my parenting. And I like I, it makes me think of the sit and spin. I mean, that messed up my regulation like crazy. And I'm just like, I would never let my son get on a sit and spin. And now I'm just thinking, man, you know, there's such a there's a balance that needs to happen here. Well, Julia Chen, when you are asked by 
people to recommend toys that strike the balance of fun, maybe a little bit of danger or risk associated with it, lots of imagination. What are the kinds of things that you recommend? Um, I think it's really about things that um, just don't do anything and you let encourage your child to think, what, can, what do I want to do with this? And when you build upon that, um, children naturally, when they get older, will look at something, ooh, I can do so much with that. And their, their brain is just going off and coming up with their own ideas. Like so many of the callers have mentioned, I mean, some of these things, I mean, this is all their own ideas that they came up with. It wasn't something that was suggested play ideas on the package, um, if they were even toys at all. And the idea is that children, if it's something very simple, um, whether it's just a, a, a truck um, that's very plain, they will come up with many ways to um, in include some of that danger um, or that sort of unknown element. I mean, in a way, they're, they're experimenting. Well, Christina writes, we grew up pretty poor, so we had to make our own toys most of the time, using the roof of our home as a hiding place during hide and seek, making a rubber band gun with a clothespin attached to a stick, using a rope attached to the back of a bike to pull someone on a skateboard or skates. I'm not sure how the four of us survived our childhood. We are now all in our 50s. And Mike writes, on top of dangerous toys, bikes, equipment aside, children in the 70s had evil Knievel. The decision we made on big wheels and bikes were heavily influenced by him, and I have many scars to prove it. Theo writes, I think I permanently lost part of my fingerprints from taking my shrinky dinks out of their special oven before they cooled off. I still have some sheets and my coveted machine. Looking forward to showing my grandkids how analog use to be. All right, Laura Rafferty, leave us with the final thoughts that you hope this reflection on toys of old uh, will leave people with. Well, I really hope that people will come to the Mount Valley Museum in Yonville. And we, we have a big lawn in the back where you can play with hula hoops and quote unquote safe lawn darts and other things and Nerf basketballs. We didn't talk about Nerf, but, you know, you can hurt yourself on Nerf just like you can hurt yourself on a hard object. It's it's um, really just letting multi-generational people, young people, they're uh, all the way up to their grandparents, remembering what these toys were like, sharing the experience of running wild in the world uh, and managing somehow to survive. Laura Rafferty, Executive Director of the Napa Valley Museum, Yontville, which features an exhibit called Dangerous Games, Treacherous Toys We Loved as Kids. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you. Julia Chen is owner of the Play Store, a Berkeley-based online retailer of wooden toys and a board member of Fair Play. Chloe Veltman is a reporter for KQED News who inspired our segment today. Thanks, Chloe. Oh, you're welcome, Mina. And thanks to our listeners for all their memories and reflections. We'll leave you with the commercial for a favorite toy for a girl and a boy, <laughs> Slinky. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. It's Slinky. It's Slinky. It's Slinky. For fun, it's a wonderful toy. It's fun for a girl and a boy. It's fun for a girl and a boy. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.